Welcome back to our series, The Invitation. Last weekend, businessman Daniel Ross responded to an invite by someone named Jesus to have dinner at Maggiano's. As he entered the restaurant, he sat down at this table and began to dialogue with his host, Jesus. Daniel began to wonder, could this be real? And that's when he asked his tough question. Okay, fine. I'll play along here. Uh, Here's one for you. The other day, I was driving down the road, and I drive past this church, and they have this sign out in front, and there was a statement on the sign, and it kind of went something like, the only way to the Father is through me. Well, I have to tell you something, Yesh. I think that if you really said that, you're full of it. Here's your soup, sir. Thank you so much. And your stuffed mushrooms. Well, thank you. Right. Well, enjoy. We will. Thanks. I always like to say a short prayer of thanks before my meals. Do you mind? Oh, sure. Whatever. Okay. Father, I thank you for always providing for us whom you love. That's it? Uh, Yeah. Would you like to add something? Oh, no. No, I guess that covers it. Okay. Well, Dan, I was wondering, why is it so hard for you to accept me saying that I'm the only way to the Father? Well, Yesh, I just I have a hard time because there's just so many people. I mean, billions yeah. of people in the world, and they're all looking for this way to God. They're all following these different beliefs. And mm-hmm. you come along and say that, well, Jesus comes along and says the only way to the Father is through him. Yeah, and your difficulty with that is what? Oh, well, it's huge. I mean, who's to say that Jesus' way is any better than Muhammad's or Buddha's or Confucius's or, well, the Hindus didn't really have a guy, but still. Are you saying that you believe Hinduism is true? Well, I've got friends that are into Hinduism, and it works for them. I didn't ask if you thought it worked. I asked if you thought it was true. Well, it's true for them. Okay. You know, before Copernicus, people thought the earth was as flat as, as this table. Of course, that wasn't true, but it worked for them. Why? I don't know. I mean, I guess it didn't matter much back then. I mean, until Columbus came along, people really didn't travel all that far, except for the Vikings and the bears. And we know how fast the bears can go from the top to the bottom. I mean, it's like that, man. Oh, my goodness, Daniel. Listen, back to reality. Let's, let's say for a moment that while believing the earth was flat, these people had built a rocket to go to the moon. So you're saying what? Well, what I'm saying is this. You can believe in something, and it can work for you even though it's wrong, but only to a point. At some critical juncture, it ceases to work anymore. And? Well, you're the guy with the degree. You tell me. Well, it sounds like you're saying that even if there's this belief system and it's something you believe in, yet it's false, eventually it'll break down? Yeah, and you don't want to put your ultimate trust in something that's wrong. I mean, that is not a good thing to do. So, let me see. You took comparative religions at Northwestern. I'll ask you a question. What... uh, 
What do you think the Hinduisms believe about the universe? How does that stack up to what you know? What? How does he know that? This is really starting to creep me out. <sighs> okay, well, as I recall, Hinduism teaches that the universe is simply an extension of this force called Brahman. Okay. So, let me ask you, are you saying to me that God is the universe and the universe is God? Mm-hmm. I'm saying there is no separate creator. Okay, well then how long has the universe been around? Well, some Hindus would say forever. I mean, Brahman's eternal, so the universe is eternal. Well, how's that stack up with what your scientists discovered in the last century? Well, I guess it's not too good. I mean, all the evidence points to the fact that the Earth actually had a beginning. So I think they say about 15 billion years ago. Well, Dan, what if that number is wrong? Well, then I guess the universe can't be eternal. I mean, the second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system, eventually everything winds down. So if Hinduism is true, then how did we end up with this universe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. But uh, when it comes to reality, Hinduism has some other issues as well. Like what? Morality. I mean, human beings are highly moral creatures. Um, societies, whether they are... Uh, complex ones or primitive ones all share similar moral codes. So where does Hinduism say that that morality comes from? I mean, uh, who decides what is right and what is, what is wrong? Well, it's not Brahman because it's amoral. I mean, nothing is right, nothing is wrong. It just is. Okay, so what is the source of morality then? If the source of everything is amoral, neither right nor wrong. I mean, who decides what's right or wrong? Well, I suppose we do. Yeah, but you're an extension of this Brahman, this force that's out there, which is amoral. So it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, Hinduism doesn't make sense about other things. Take, for instance, personality. You know, when it comes to personality... People really enjoy their individuality. It's part of what mm -hmm. it means to really be human. So what does Hinduism teach about personality? Well, as I recall, it teaches that your personality is an illusion, and you have to renounce it in order to enter into this oneness with the universe. Okay. So what I hear you saying is that the most important part of you, your mm -hmm. personality, is mm -hmm. just an illusion. Someday you're going to die and just kind of get reabsorbed into the force, this Brahman force that's out there. Now, Dan, think about it with me for a minute. If personality is an illusion, why are people so individualistic? How could an impersonal, universal force bring forth such unique, well, such unique personalities? Listen, listen, Yesh. You could say the same thing about all Eastern religions. Yes, and that's what the problem is with those religions. I mean, their view of the world, Dan, is a wrong view. Their understanding of the universe is not the way the universe is. Now, what do you remember about Buddhism? Well, as I recall, Buddhism is a lot like Hinduism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this ultimate reality of this abstract voice called nirvana, and you enter nirvana by traveling this eightfold path, 
path and you uh, just put aside all of your feelings and your emotions and then once you've done that, all your trouble ends. I mean, all your problems go away. So you just detach yourself from your desires. You know, I was uh, looking at this wine glass and I was thinking to myself, mm-hmm. it's, it's made well. Mm-hmm. Now, whoever made this had an attachment to a desire for craftsmanship. Probably. Well, do you think there's much that human beings have accomplished that didn't involve somebody being passionate about what they were doing? Like the food you're eating? I mean, somebody was passionate when they made that? The chef? They were. It's pretty good. But really, I don't think that they do. And you can't do much without passion. That's right. You took biology. Mm -hmm. Um, How many nerve cells do you think you have in your skin that are capable of feeling pleasure? Probably millions. So an impersonal universe somehow takes on the form of personal beings who have great desires and a capacity to feel pleasure. And the whole point in life, Dan, is just to simply deny all that desire, deny all that pleasure? Well, I suppose that doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Do you suppose suffering was so great in India that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, tried to find a way to explain it and in the process came up with this system of belief that if we deny our desires, we can alleviate suffering? Uh, Excuse me, sir. Yes. Uh, Have you finished with your mushrooms? Yes, I have. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, look, what about Islam? I mean, maybe this pantheistic religion stuff doesn't hold up, but the Muslims claim to worship the same God of the Bible. So who's to say that they're wrong and you, or Jesus, is right? Well, that depends if God actually spoke to Muhammad, doesn't it? I mean, it's a lot of weight to put on one man's writing, especially someone who allegedly heard from an angel, wasn't sure it was God, struggled with bouts of suicidal thought, um, intimidated people to follow him through militaristic force, uh, consented to the death of his enemies, and married a nine-year-old girl amongst other things. What? Who says that? I mean, I have never heard any of that. No, revered Muslim writings, like the Surat Rasul Allah, or the Hadith al-Tabari, among other writings? Look, you could say that about Christianity, too. I mean, it all depends on whether or not God spoke to some guy. Listen, the Bible was written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year span of time. And what's so amazing, Dan, is that there is such commonality, such agreement, such consistency in their message. That does not argue against it. That actually argues for its divine origin. Yeah, but still, I mean, who's to say that God didn't speak to Muhammad as well? Well, if he did, he got some things wrong. Like what? Like my crucifixion, for instance. He said that I was never crucified, that an angel rescued me and took me to heaven. You mean Jesus? That's what I said. Look, Muhammad still could have been right. No, he was wrong. No, that's right. Of course, you were there. Listen, don't, don't ask me about my crucifixion if you don't want to. Um, look at the evidence from the early Christian witnesses who witnessed it. Or even examine what 
non-Christian historians have written about the fact that it actually happened. Besides that, uh, Islam has other problems. Such as what? Well, take, for instance, the Bible. They say that the Bible has been corrupted over time and that it can't be trusted. So? So it's wrong. Ask any scholar in the field, Dan, and they'll tell you... Well, take, for instance, sources like, um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which everybody accepts. If you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, they verify most of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Besides that, we have over 5,000 early manuscripts in the New Testament. We have what they wrote. It's all there for you. You can do with it what you want, but you have what was written. Well, still don't, still don't understand that. I mean, it's just got to be more. I mean, well, listen. Um, I don't know what to do for you after that point. I mean, I can't convince you about all these facts being true. Um, let me let me tell you that one of the biggest problems Islam has. Well, let me put it this this way to you: What's your greatest desire? Huh. How about a Porsche nine eleven turbo, baby, or like maybe a new house, uh, maybe a raise? I mean, come on! I don't know. I mean, okay. all right, look. If I think about it, reality is this: I guess one of my greatest desires is simply to be loved. Okay. Well, I don't want to be really personal with this one, but um, has your, in your experience of life, has your need to be totally and completely loved, has it ever been fulfilled? No, not really. That's because it cannot be. See, only God can fulfill that desire in your life, Dan, because God made you, and there's this God-shaped vacuum inside of you that only God can fill. And that, that's a hope that Muslims don't have because, because Allah cannot be known in a real personal relationship. They worship and serve him from afar. Now, I want you to think about this. Why would God create this need in your life and then turn around and not fulfill it? I don't know. I just know that maybe the Muslims don't have all the answers. But quite frankly, I don't think anybody does. No, they don't. They only think they do. Look, what if God doesn't exist? I mean, what if this material world is all that we really have? Then you got the whole problem of design. What? That the Big Bang Theory is impossible? That this, that this couldn't have happened by accident? Have you ever heard of Roger Penrose? Yeah, I believe he helped develop the theory on the black hole. Do you know what he calculated the odds were that a cosmic accident would create the order we see in our universe rather than just chaos? A million to one? (laughs) Try one in 100 billion to 123rd power. Hmm. I guess those aren't very good odds, are they? (laughs) And that's just the macro universe. He didn't take into account the, the design of complex biological life. Okay, look, Yesh, I agree that there has to be some transcendent being and not just this physical presence. I mean, you've done a great job of poking holes in all these other religions. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you, from my perspective, it seems that all religions, including Christianity, are nothing more than a path to the same place. I mean, we are all looking to God for... Well, are, are you looking to God? Look, like I was saying, I believe that all people are looking to God or looking for God in their own way. I mean, that's what I love about the church that my friends Tom and Paula attend. 
I mean, they embrace everyone there. I mean, they meet you right where they're at, right where you're at, and they help you on this path to God. There's just one problem with that kind of thinking. And that's what? Dan, there is no path to God. Well, as we wrap up this morning, I just want to make a statement that I do not believe in religion. Because religion is defined as man's search for God. And I don't believe that you can, on your own power and in your own strength and your own volition, your own will, find God. See, God is not an object in our universe that we can put under a microscope and dissect and figure out like we do so many other things. And please listen carefully. God is not an idea in our intellect that we can probe with our thoughts and discover. What leads to so many religions in the world today is that Men and women start with themselves and their own ideas of what God is like. And if you chase your idea, you formulate beliefs or systems of thinking, you can end up with, well, what we have today, just so many different religions. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and when I say Christian, I have to always now defend what I mean, define what I mean. I don't mean Christian like you see necessarily on TV, <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean Christianity as some Christians make it to be when they end up being hypocrites. I'm talking about Christianity as it is defined in the Word of God, the Bible. My understanding of Christianity is that I cannot find God, but that God has found me. Now that's a totally different way of thinking about God. Now, the question I have to ask myself, we're going to ask over the next couple of weekends, is, is how has God found us? How can we relate to God? And does God's revelation of himself to us withstand the scrutiny of truth? For instance, when we're listening here to the discussion between Daniel and Jesus, every time Daniel would bring up a religion, a result of men searching for God, whether it was the various leaders of Hinduism, which is very ancient, or Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, or Muhammad, or we could put in any other names, and we could go as far as, you know, Joseph Smith or, and, and the Mormons. I mean, any of these names, every time he would bring them up, Jesus would respond simply by asking questions that were truth-based, questions that we know about the universe, questions that we know about history. 
And every time he would bring those up and you would take what they were saying and try to put it against truth, there was inconsistencies that could not be reconciled. And we're going to ask the same questions about about, uh, Jesus Christ and about Christianity over the next couple of weekends. Because I don't want to believe just for the sake of believing. I don't want to believe something just because it works for me right now. Because as we learned, it may stop working when I discover a different truth or a new truth or I realize against truth that it doesn't work anymore. I want to know that what I believe in and who I believe in is the real deal. Don't you? I want to stick my head in the sand and just believe for the sake of believing. So as a Christian, I believe in God, the God of the Bible, not because I found him, he found me. Now, to understand that, let's, uh, let's use a couple of objects to think about God and time and God and space. You know, the Bible writers who were inspired by God, we believe, by the Spirit of God, oftentimes refer to God in terms of heaven. For instance, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 in our Bible, it says this. It says, don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. Preachers should listen to that, right? All right. In Psalm 115, we hear these words. Psalm 115, it says, the heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to all humanity. So when the Bible writers are talking about God and talking about God in heaven, they think of heaven in two different ways. They think about heaven like you and I think about it when we look up at the sky and the stars are out and we think of the universe around us. But they also refer to heaven in terms of God's abode or God's place of dwelling, God's space and time. Now, I know that God is omniscient. That means that God is all-knowing and he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere present. But heaven refers to that place where God is the most present. We often talk about our loved ones who die and know Jesus. And we say, you know, as much as we miss them, we now know they are where? In heaven with the Lord, right? When Jesus ascended, it says he went to be with the Father where? In heaven. And when he returns again, we believe he's coming from where? Heaven. So we think of God in his own dimension, so to speak, space and time, his heaven, that place where God is most present. We also know that, and believe that, God created this universe that you and I live in, and we're like this little fiber here in the midst of all the universe, right? It's a vast, large universe, and we occupy this teeny little speck. Now, as people talk about God and his relationship to his creation, they hold different kinds of views. And when I was talking about Hinduism, and when I was talking about Buddhism especially, I was talking about views that can be parked under a big word called pantheism. Views that believe that God is in everything and in everyone, and everyone and everything is in God. 
Folks, listen carefully to me. This is a very, very popular way of thinking in the world and growing in its popularity here in the States. Go to any bookstore, go to the religious section, and most of the books that you will read under the self-help section and especially under the religious section are all pantheistic. It's all about getting in touch with this force. Now, they may slice it, dice it, say it in different ways, but they all hold the same general view. So Deepak Chopra and others that you'll hear interviewed on you know, Larry King Live and CNN and Oprah and all that, they're going to talk about these things. Celebrities will talk about these things, and it's all called pantheism. And in essence, what pantheism teaches is that there are no separate spheres that God is interwoven into our sphere, that God is interwoven into our universe, and you can't pull it apart. So the whole goal in life is to get in tune with this force called God, whoever it, he, she may be, And in order to tune into God, you have to tune out of self. You have to deny your impulses. You have to deny your feelings. You have to deny your personality and become one with this force. And there are many ways and many levels and they get very complex in how they do it. But that is what pantheism is all about. If you have children and grandchildren who are going to colleges and universities, they will be inundated with this type of teaching. And of course, this type of teaching also says that we should not uh, in any way, shape, or form ever say that our view of how to do this is different or better or the only view. We need to learn to respect that all of us are looking for God. We are all finding God on different pathways. And all that matters is that we want to be connected to the divine force of the universe. Another view says, no, 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 no. These two are very, very separate. There is God's sphere and our sphere. Now, this view goes all the way back before the time that Jesus took on flesh here on this earth. In, in uh, recent times, it has a name. It's called deism. And our early uh, founders of this nation, Washington, Franklin, Thomas Paine, and Jefferson especially, were what we call deists. Deists believe that God has his space and dimension that he created this space and dimension and put us here, but God has absolutely no interest in us. And so in essence, God has taken us and flung us out into space. And we kind of hang out there, and it's up to us to make it on our own. God is very uninvolved with us. So here we are in this universe. What are we going to do? And it leads actually to... Uh, a couple of ways of thinking. There are some folks that say, well, we're on our own, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry and have a good old time and enjoy all our impulses. Hedonists. All right? Another view says, oh my goodness, well, God gave us certain rights and abilities, morality. I'm just going to be a moralist. I'm going to try to live the best, the goodest life that I can. I know goodest isn't a word, but it felt good. And then there are others who say, you know what? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to know what's going to happen. So they're into materialism. I'm just going to work on making lots of money, climbing the corporate ladder, being the smartest in my class, being the best at what I do. I'm going to keep myself so busy I don't have to deal with the questions in my mind about why am I here in the first place. If God is detached from me, 
Do I have to live an agnostic life my whole life? Do I have to say, well, there could be God, there may not be God. Am I, am I going to be an ignoramus my whole life? I'll just stay really busy. The other view is suicide. The truth is that not all, by any means, but many people who get themselves caught up in pantheism and try their best to get in touch with the view of the universe end up having so many questions that cannot be answered by that type of thinking that in despair they take their own lives. Many people who believe that God is disconnected from the world, doesn't really care about us anymore, get so filled with despair, so many questions that cannot be answered, they take their own lives. There's so much sadness in this world. The Christian view, the view that I take from the Word of God, which I believe is inspired by the Spirit of God, is that God has His heaven. God has His abode. God created this universe, but God is not detached as a creator should be and would be, he loves his creation. Although his creation is in rebellion against him. You see the evidence of that everywhere you look. We are sinful. We are born sinful. We try to live our own life. We're filled with pride. We're going to do it our way. We're going to create our own religion. We want to make God in our own image. We want a God who will meet our needs on our terms. And yet God What God does is God says, I'm going to chase you down. I'm going to pursue you. I want to bring you back in a relationship with myself. And so what we believe is that God overlaps and intersects our universe, our world, to reveal himself to us. That's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is the story of not how man finds God, but of how God finds man and reveals himself to man. Now, we're going to start looking at this a little bit next weekend when we talk about how God used Israel to do that. But think about the history of the Bible for a minute. God reveals himself to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the other nations through you and the nation I'll create through you. God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember that? Cloud and thunder and earthquake and shaking and the commandments are given out. God speaks. God makes himself present in space and time by his presence symbolized at the Ark of the Covenant parked in the tabernacle, then parked in the temple there at Jerusalem, God's holy mountain. But then in God's timing and in God's great sovereign plan, God loved us so much. God loves you and me so much. God wants us in relationship with himself so badly because we're his creation. God so wants to reconcile us that he does the unimaginable. He does the impossible. God takes and puts on human skin. He becomes just like us. And he reveals himself to us. Through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And that is the story of the Bible. And that is the story of our faith. And that is how God has found us. And then through Jesus has made a way for us to be reconnected with him. So that those longings we talked about last weekend, the longing for justice is met in Jesus who declares us not guilty of our sin, our guilt, and our shame. 
who one day promises us a world where there will be no injustice anymore. He satisfies that longing for a spiritual connection that we talked about last weekend with God. He alone is the connection to God, for he himself is God. He alone restores us into relationship. He alone shows us that God loves us unconditionally, that God can forgive us and heal us and restore us. And he alone promises us to meet that longing for beauty. He says that someday there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, an entire new dimension, remade, refashioned by God, greater than the Garden of Eden ever was. But it all happens through his son, Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to a critical juncture, doesn't it? Because now we've got to answer the question, how does he do that through Jesus? And can Jesus be trusted? I mean, really, why is Jesus different than Muhammad or, or uh, any other founder of some religion? And we're going to put that to the test. And if we can arrive to the fact that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, if the evidence backs it up so much as we can see, then all that's left for us then is to take a step of faith and put our trust in him. Amen. I love the way Paul speaks about this in the book of Galatians From the New Living Translation, listen carefully in light of everything we've heard this morning, both in the drama and in this message. But when the time, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman. God sent him to buy freedom for us so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Before you Gentiles knew God, You're a slave to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again, become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? Let's stand. Father, as we go from this place I want to thank you that through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ, you have given us an offer of hope and reconciliation to the only true God. Father, I pray for any who are here today that are wondering about you but have never made a decision about you, I pray, O oh God, that in the days to come, you would be speaking to their hearts, helping them to examine what they do believe as its benchmark against the truth. Help us, Lord, who claim to be followers of Jesus, not to be afraid to, to put Jesus to the test, to ask the hard questions. 
And Father, as we see and realize that that Jesus only verifies the truth, as we see that He indeed is who He claimed to be, I pray, oh God, that You would give us the faith to put our trust in Him alone. I thank You that this Christmas season, we're not talking about a legend, a fairy tale, or some romantic notion. I thank you that Jesus in a manger was real. Thank you that his life was real. His death was real. His resurrection was real. And his coming, oh, how we look forward to it, is real as well. Bless these people, Lord, with your presence and your power, your goodness and your grace as they leave this place today. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. If you're a guest, hope to see you at the guest center. Have a good day.